Welcome to the Bible Journeys podcast. Your traveling companion is Ed Dickerson, an author, teacher, and scholar. He holds a master's degree in religious education from Andrews University. As you explore together, you'll learn tools and techniques that illuminate scripture, renew your faith, and brighten your journey. Well, thank you for joining me again on the Bible Journeys podcast. I'm Ed Dickerson, and uh, I'm your traveling companion. Uh, We're continuing our journey to read the Bible as it was meant to be read. And this is episode two, Different Cultures, Different Stories. This is one of the challenges of reading the stories of the Bible as they were meant to be read, because there's often a large gap in time and sometimes a fairly large gap in culture and the circumstances in which people were actually experiencing these stories. But as I said, you know, we live in a time when we have so many resources, there have been so much archaeology done, we have uh, so many ancient texts now that we understand better, and so it's very possible at least to get close to. Uh, we always have to hold our own human efforts in uh, humility and understand that we will probably never exactly understand. That's what eternity may be for. But we can get very close to it now, and that can help illuminate Scripture. It can renew our faith, and it can brighten our journey a lot. I'm often asked, how do we know which parts of the Bible are cultural and which parts are inspired, as though there's a conflict between the two? But of course, the whole point is that if the inspired communication, if God's message for a given group of people or a given individual at a particular time is to make sense to them, then it has to be done in their cultural milieu, in their where they are. God meets people where they are. It's an important principle. The inspired message has to be encapsulated in a cultural message in order to be understood at all. So it's not really a conflict. Uh, We just need to understand the cultural package in which we find the divine message. And I want to tell a story. Many of you will have heard this story. It's a book that was written many years ago, but it's important to understand. In the 1960s, there were two missionaries, Don and Carol Richardson, and they risked their lives to share the gospel with the Sawi people of New Guinea. Uh, They did not really fully understand when they moved there that this culture actually valued treachery. They would fatten their victims and they would flatter them, building up friendship, and eventually they would kill them and eat them. That was a considered to be a very uh, clever thing to do. And so, unknowing, they told the story of Jesus and his disciples. And when they told this story, the tribespeople said, Ah, the hero of the story is Judas. Because Judas, in their view, insinuated himself into Jesus' company. He pretended to be a disciple, and he then betrayed Jesus at the very end. But when they realized that they saw Judas, that when the Richardsons realized, that the tribespeople saw Judas as the hero, they 
we're dumbfounded. They, what were they going to do? How are they going to reach these people? And it turned out that, yes, they tended to uh, have battles and to trick one another and, and to practice cannibalism, but they also understood in some uh, visceral sense that you can't go on fighting forever, that it will destroy everyone. And so there was a tradition, and those of you who are familiar with the book will recognize it. It was the tradition of the peace child. In this practice, the, uh, they would perform a ceremony, an emotional peace child ceremony. Each village would present the enemy with an infant as a peace child. As long as that child lives, they explained to the Richardsons, the village lives at peace. In the case of an offense, someone may plead the peace child and strife will cease. And of course, what happened was is they seized upon that idea. Uh, Jesus was the peace child that God gave to humanity. And he suffered the penalty, but because he lives forever, there can forever be peace between we who are sinners and the great creator of the universe. And so through this story of the peace child, they were able to communicate the gospel. Now, this is a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. Different cultures understand stories differently. And you can say all you want to about, oh, they were a terrible, a sinful culture. Yes, we're all sinners, aren't we? And unless God can reach out to us sinners in language that we understand, we can't be reached. And so it's our task as followers of Jesus to take these eternal truths and to package them in ways which are understandable to whatever culture we may encounter. Of course, this is a marvelous story, marvelous and a very uh, inspiring story. But here's what the story of the peace child tells us. First of all, as I said, different cultures interpret different stories differently. And they may also tell them in different ways. And when we come to the scriptures, we're going to find out that oftentimes stories are told in ways which are surprising to us. I can't go into all of them in one setting, but I want to show you how this works itself out in the Bible. And again, to communicate effectively, the stories must have a target audience. The story uh, the typical story that we tell of Jesus was not appropriate to communicate the gospel to the Sawi people that the Richardsons went to. And so they, when you have a different target audience, you have to tell the truth, the same story, but you change it, you tell it differently. You tell it in a different way. And that's important to understand. And it's the cultural part, as I said, of the Bible that makes the stories meaningful. If it doesn't, if they're not, you know, it makes them accessible. Uh, again, if you tell the regular story to the Saudi people, they say, oh, Judas is the good guy. They don't get the truth of what's happening here, even though you told the correct facts in the correct order. 
And so understand this. We're, we're very Greek in our mindsets, and we're all about the correct facts and the correct order. And we'll get to that in the next podcast, how that works out, because there is a gospel written for people like us. In any case, so the first thing is that it makes the stories accessible by changing it to the peace child narrative. They made this story and the understanding of God's grace for all humankind. He made that accessible to the sorry people. Secondly, it makes these things relevant. Religion must be relevant. It must have take-home value. It must be where the rubber meets the road. It must be practical, or people will reject it sooner or later. Whereas it's wonderful to have theology and all these theoretical facts, and that's fine, and make make the gospel more practical in our lives. But we have to first get them in ways which are relevant to our existence. And the peace child was relevant to the Sahi people. It made the story of the gospel relevant to their lives. They understood how God, by giving us his son as a continual peace child, could always be at peace with us no matter how bad we are. And then it makes the story effective. It has convicting power. One of the reasons that many of the sermons and many of the devotional books and many of the things that we read don't have, it seems, very much power is because they are based too much on our human reasoning and not enough upon the gospel story, not enough upon what is here. Because when you look at it, the story of the peace child, the story of Jesus as the peace child, the cosmic peace child, is every bit as powerful as the story of the crucified Christ who's betrayed by one of his friends. It's just in a different mode, a different approach. So the Richardsons first told the story of Jesus as they would to a Western first world audience. Again, it has to, they, they didn't understand, and this is, I'm not criticizing them at all because I probably wouldn't have come up with what they did. But we are too, too prone to do this, even in our own families because culture is changing so rapidly right now. Culture has changed more probably in the last 20 years than it had in the previous 200 years. How can I possibly say that? Well, YouTube is uh, not quite 20 years old. Facebook, not quite 20 years old. Twitter, less. A lot of these things that are happening and the repercussions they have on the general culture have happened in a very, very short time period. And so we need to understand that even our children and grandchildren, the next generations, are a different audience than we were at their age. There are some commonalities. We can use those. We'll get to that. But there are also significant differences. The Sai people were not a first-world Western audience. Far from it. And therefore, by telling the one story, it was totally inappropriate. It didn't work at all for the Sai people. They understood the words because the uh, Richardsons were learning to speak their language. 
but their culture attached a very different meaning, a different significance. As we go forward, we'll see that reading for the facts is one thing, and reading for significance is quite another. And here's a perfect example of this. They got all the words, but they got the significance wrong. And again, the burden is upon the messenger. You know, this is why God even has prophets. He gives them a message that is important for humanity, and they communicate it in their own culture in ways that people can understand. In retelling the gospel, portraying Jesus as the peace child, they told the story of Jesus in a way that the Sawi people would understand the significance, there we are, of the Christ event. When we talk about the Christ event, this is something that theologians commonly speak of because it isn't just Jesus' words, it's his life, it's what he did. Uh, every uh, school I know that teaches the teachings of Jesus has a class something like the life and teachings of Jesus because they're inseparable. That's the Christ event. So Jesus coming here, what he said and what he did, this is uh, important. That's the significant, but we have to explain that significance in a way that makes sense to contemporary people, the people we're talking to. And for the Sai people, the peace child made more sense. They did not alter the facts. Again, this is something that as... Uh, Greek-thinking uh, people, we have much of the Greek uh, tradition in our thinking. Uh, we're very concerned about facts. Well, they didn't alter any of the facts. They didn't change the story exactly. They didn't change what happened. They changed the emphasis in a way so that that significance could be effectively communicated. This goes on throughout Scripture starting with Genesis, all the way to the end, Revelation, although a little hint for later, Revelation was not the last book written in the Bible. Anyway, they changed the emphasis in a way that communicated the significance, and that's what happens throughout the Bible, is that each of the biblical authors, each of the prophets, because it is, they're speaking for God, which is what a prophet does, each of the prophets then emphasized certain aspects because they were communicating a part of God's nature. Now, God is infinite, so none of us is going to come up with the magic silver bullet that is going to uh, explain everything about God. He's, he's infinite, and we're finite, so that's just not going to happen. And our words are even smaller than our being, so it's just not going to happen. But you want to communicate the significance of the part that you understand. So understand, the Bible was written to them. That is to say, Genesis 1 was written to a people a very long time ago. The Gospels were written to people in the first century. The, uh, the book of Revelation was written at the end of the first century almost to a group that was, many of them were under persecution. These circumstances had changed in a very short time. Uh, Daniel is, and Ezekiel are written to a people in exile, whereas the kings and the chronicles talk about the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, where 
They ruled. They ruled themselves, so to speak. So the Bible is written for each of these groups. You have to, when you when you read the Bible, you have to read it in mind of who was receiving this, who was the original audience, because they would understand it a little differently than someone else. But it was preserved for us. So it was written for them, but it was preserved for us. Now, not everything that was done. We've already mentioned the, the, the Gospel of John. John says there are many other things done which he did not record. And it would be impossible to record everything. Plus, it would be overwhelming, and we would, that would, we'd have to sort through and make sense of it. But the Bible was written for people in times, well, as, uh, only as recent as 2,000 years ago. So there's that, that barrier. But it was, there was something about the messages because, again, Nathan had many communications with David. There are lots of prophetic communications which were not preserved. We know the prophets. We don't know necessarily what they said because they were not preserved. Their, their writings, their utterances were not preserved. So the Bible was written to these ancient people, but it was preserved for us because there was something important. And uh, all prophetic utterance is timely. That is, God gives it to a people in a place and a time to meet the needs of that moment, not some other time, that moment. But some prophetic utterance is timeless. It is both timely, it was timely at the time, but it also contains timeless principles and understanding. It's eternal. And so God made sure he had his hand over the Bible, I believe, and he preserved what was timeless for us. Now, if people have uh, different different disagreements with me or differences, they can certainly put things, uh, send to me at my email address, biblejourneys at yahoo.com, or the, in the video, they can put them in, in the comments section. No problem with that. I'd be glad to talk. But understand, if you come to this and say, well, the Bible isn't really a book and so forth, I'm not really talking to you. If you're saying that it's all full of, of fables and so forth, I'm not really talking to you. Uh, it, it isn't that I don't think you're worthwhile. It's just that my mission is to someone else. Uh, and I will be able to take up some of these topics in future podcasts, but not, not every possible one. All right. Again, just to emphasize, to communicate effectively, Bible stories, any stories, must have a target audience. They must understand who they are talking to, who they're aimed for, so that they can be effectively communicated. John Walton, in his wonderful book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, talks about reading the Bible as it was meant to be read. He calls it the face value of the text. And he says, in order to understand the face value of the text, we need to read it as the ancient author would have intended and as the ancient audience would have heard it. This just simply makes sense. I'm not God. You're not God. I'm not inspired. But somehow the person was when we have these writings that are preserved in the Bible. And so they had a purpose and an audience in mind. They intended to convey a certain meaning, and they expected their audience to understand it in a certain way. This is true of uh, virtually every book. In fact, I can, in in Revelation 1, 3, it says, uh, blessed are those who heed the message of this book. Well, you can't heed something you don't understand. So apparently, John expected his audience to understand the symbols in Revelation. More of that in future podcasts.
But here's this makes perfect sense. The author intended to convey something, and he anticipated that his audience would hear it in a certain way. And so we want to get as close to that conversation as we can. We want to get inside the culture as closely as we can. We understand as thoroughly as we can. And again, there are plenty of tools. You'll see as we go along that there are plenty of tools. This is not all that hard to do. So I just want to take a look just briefly, because we don't have much time left, at the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to do this because Matthew is a gospel. We have four gospels, and they differ in some respects. And I'm going to just look at one this week, uh, this podcast. I think next podcast we'll look at all four of them, show how they differ and what this means in terms of their audience and how to read each of the Gospels. But Matthew pretty much makes it clear. The very first verse, this is how Matthew begins. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, he is a Jew. Matthew is a Jew. Everything in his gospel, we'll get to more and more evidence of that. But everything in his gospel tells you that he's Jewish and that he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so the Jewish audience cares about the genealogy. You've got to be from the right tribe if you're going to be the Messiah. And so he wants you to know that Jesus was the Messiah. And to be the Messiah, he had to be the son of David. And to be the son of David, and he had to be a son of Abraham. Okay, so he's these things. You know, may seem obvious to us, or it may seem oblivious. Again, we're talking about a genealogy. We're back to skip it. The son of skip it. If you don't recognize that reference, uh, go back to the first podcast. But anyway, the son of this is important for them. Jesus can be the Messiah because he is one of the royal line of David, and two, a Jew. He's a descendant of Abraham. This matters. You cannot claim to be the Messiah. You cannot be the Messiah unless both of these things are true. And Matthew knows this, that this is what the Jews need to, prove, to understand Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's providing this right from the very start. In fact, everything we're going to talk about today in this podcast, the remainder of the few minutes we have here, is from the first chapter of Matthew. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What? Who cares about 14? I mean, there are numbers in the Bible that matter. Sevens, number of maturity, completion, perfection. Uh, There's three, which is the number of the Godhead. There's 12, which is the number of the people of God. There are all these numbers that have meaning, but 14 is not one of them. There's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about 14. So what's going on here? Well, you have to be pretty conversant with Judaism to even understand this. And what it is is actually quite simple. You know, we, we're, we know about Roman numerals where you have I is one and V is five and so forth. Well, the Romans weren't the only one who used their alphabet for numerals. Uh, so did the Hebrews. And they, the first letter of their alphabet was Aleph, and that was one. And the second letter was bait, and that was two, and so forth through the alphabet. And as it turns out, what you have here is that here's the spelling of David. There were no vowels in uh, early biblical Hebrew, no vowels and no vowel pointings. So his, his uh, name would have been Dalit, the fourth letter of the alphabet, Vav, 
the sixth letter of the alphabet, and Dalit again, DVD. So that's that's it, DVD, the, sixth, the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter. And when you add those up, you get 14. You get 14. And so what Matthew is communicating to his audience is that from Abraham to David, to start with the chosen people and get to David, it took 14 generations, and David is, his number is 14. Then there were 14 generations of the monarchy. The Davidic house ruled. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what he's saying here is that there were 14 generations from the beginning of the chosen people, Abraham to David, and David's number is 14. There are 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. That's 14 generations of the monarchy. And then he says from uh, 14 generations from the exile to now, to the Messiah, to Jesus. And so you had 14 generations without a monarch, 14 generations of the Davidic monarchy. Now there have been 14 more generations without the monarchy. So it's time for the new David. 14. That's what this is all about. It's amazing, really. And so you can see that Matthew is aiming. We, can, we will go on. We'll see much more of this in the future podcasts. But Matthew is a Jewish gospel uh, written by a Jew, aimed at Jews. And he starts out the very first chapter with these things, which would be of interest to the Jews, but for many others, it would make no sense at all for us today. It's kind of, huh? We have to get back to that culture and understand what they were thinking, because that's what matters. And there you are. 14, from Abraham to 14, 14, from 14 to the exile. Again, if you just substitute 14 for David, and 14 from the exile to the new 14, Messiah, Jesus. So, pretty cool. So, how do we know how the human authors intended their contribution to the Bible to be read? They tell us. Sometimes they tell us explicitly. Uh, even in Matthew, he says, this is, he starts out by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. For him, he's telling his audience exactly, telling us what we want to know. But we have to listen within their cultural constraints, within their context. And when we learn to do that, we can read the Bible as it was meant to be read and find great blessing in it. I hope uh, until the next podcast, you will embark on your own Bible journeys and find the many treasures that are available there. Until next time. If you've gained something from this discussion, please be sure to share it with someone because those who join our Bible journeys here can become our traveling companions for eternity.